Welcome to another sermon podcast from All Souls Anglican Church, Cherry Hill, New Jersey. Thanks for joining us as we study God's Word together. These weekly sermons are part of the teaching ministry of our church. Have your Bible ready as we begin this week's sermon. And stay tuned when we finish at the end to find out more about us. Now this evening is the 22nd sermon in our sermon series on the revelation of Jesus Christ to St. John. And our text this evening is Revelation chapter 14, verses 14 through 20. That's page 1036 in your pew Bible. It is the final scene in the fourth cycle of visions. The scene is one with which we are familiar. In other words, it's a close-up description of what will happen at the end of time. As it were, John moves quickly to the end of the age and to the ultimate harvest, the time when the Lord Jesus comes to judge the living and the dead, this ultimate harvest which will bring present world history to its conclusion. And so believers... Those who trust in the personal work of Jesus are strengthened in John's testimony. And we've seen this pattern before in the previous cycles of vision. In the first, in chapters 1 through 3, John is stabilized by the image of Christ victorious, dwelling among his seven golden lampstands, both addressing and consoling his church on earth. John is then also reassured as he's whisked to God's heavenly throne room to witness the triumphant song of the church triumphant, represented symbolically in living creature and elder. In the next cycle of chapters 4 through 7, John sees the breaking of the seven seals and the opening of the scrolls, and in it they release Conquest, the captain of the horsemen. He leads his troop in rolling human conflict and its aftermath to the four corners of the earth. It culminates when John hears the judge cry out for the rocks to fall upon them because none can endure the wrath of the Lamb. Again, John is greeted with angels who guard Christ's church on earth, now symbolized as 144,000, and he sees them join with church triumphant, to praise God and the Lamb, while God gently wipes every tear from their eyes. And so John, once again, is strengthened and stabilized after what he has witnessed. In the third cycle, in chapters 8 through 11, John is confronted with the judgment of the trumpets. The trumpet judgments he sees is spurred by the prayers of the saints. Their pleas and prayers of vindication rise like incense from the altar at the throne of God. He witnesses the horror as the fifth trumpet sounds, the fury of a demonic-like locust loosed from the bottomless pit to drive rebellious humanity to despair. It's a psychological, overwhelming judgment. The sixth angel also sounds, summoning another host of mounted terrors that rush to deceive and in despair drive those to take their own lives. 
John witnesses how all the while sinful humanity's heart is hardened all the more. They will not repent from their sorcery or sexual immorality, he writes. Stricken in sadness, John again is stabilized. In the midst of all this horror, Christ's ambassador, the grand angel, declares in Christ's name with one foot in sea, one on land, that his authority alone rules over the earth, both earth and sea. Even as the church was persecuted in the two witnesses, even in their death, God frustrates Satan and raises them up to his heavenly presence. Then as the seventh trumpet sounds, another vision of the throne, now revealing the church triumphant, plainly offering praise of thanksgiving for their salvation. And so we reach the fourth cycle, the vision of the counterfeit trinity in chapters 12 to 14. The first scene is the dragon, Satan, who sought to thwart God's Messiah, frustrated and defeated in overwhelming the woman who we see is cast from heaven. And he summons beast and false prophet to complete his triad. The beast makes war upon the saints. And as we saw last time, the second scene in Revelation 14 reveals to John the vision of the lamb on Mount Zion, the third of the angels and their vision of warning and culminating in the final harvest. Now we examine John's vision of the Lamb of God on Mount Zion, triumphant, reigning from heaven with his bride, the church once again stabilizing the believer. And we saw how John's vision shifts from heaven to earth in the declaration of the three angels, each one carrying a word of dire warning to those who are in league with the counterfeit trinity and their villainous queen consort, Babylon. Revelation 14 clearly underlines for us two camps. One side, followers of the Lamb, the number 144,000. The church, the total sum of the elect. The other side, those who worship the counterfeit trinity. The gospel is a dividing line between them. Revelation 14 also says that this division will continue until the final harvest at the last judgment. So John, realizing this, presses the question, what side of this great gospel dividing line do you stand? Are you followers of the lamb? Are you worshipers of the beast? The followers of the lamb will stand with him on Mount Zion, singing a new song. The worshipers of the beast will have no peace they will live in endless noise, torment, and punishment. And so even as the last angel ends their declaration, John witnesses the future ultimate harvest of the earth, this fourth scene, this final vision of revelation in which everything is fulfilled as this cycle concludes. This is the ultimate exodus, the fulfillment of God's promise and provision to his people. In the fulfillment of everything Jesus and the prophets had to say about the harvest of the earth. 
Now, as we heard in our Old Testament reading of the prophet Joel, the prophets Joel and Isaiah particularly portrayed the future coming of the Lord as the last harvest. They expected that on his return, this harvest would take place immediately. But we find in our Savior's ministry, indeed in his parables, another aspect. In our gospel reading this evening, we heard how Jesus came to inaugurate the kingdom, not as the judging harvester, but rather as the patient planter. This parable of the weeds that Jesus makes clear, it is the final harvest to come, foretold to the prophets where the weeds are separated from the wheat. This will only come about at the end of the age. This is what John sees now in this final scene of his vision. So if the martyrs and other believers who have died in persevering faith are the first fruits gathered on Mount Zion as Revelation 14 began, the rest of the harvest, the grain to be gathered in by the Lord Jesus, is now completed as all the saints are gathered within his protective embrace. So let's look now first at this first harvest of grain. In verses 14 through 16. Now, as we begin, we should answer one simple question. Is the grain harvested by the Lord Jesus and the grapes harvested by the angels of the same group of people? Or are they a different group of people? You'll find commentators seem to fall down on either side of this question. So it would be good for us just to do a brief, closer reading here. Let's notice, first of all, that where Joel had one harvest, John has two separate crops. There's also a difference in importance. The first is by the Lord Jesus, as we will see in a moment. The second is by an angel. Therefore, the more significant harvest is the harvest of the one like unto the Son of Man, the one who is over the angels. Another thing is the condition of the crop itself. Have you noticed this? That in one, ripeness is caused by the grass dying. The seeds are dried in the sun. In other words, the harvest ripens through trial, through adverse conditions. Whereas the other, the other ripens on a shrub. It's a fruit full of life still, and full of juice, as the scriptures testify here. In other words, the fullness of the wicked of the earth has reached its utmost. And most importantly, notice the actions described here. They're different, aren't they? The first is a single act of reaping. Now, what's missing? The second stage of harvest is missing, isn't it? The winnowing. In other words, the separation of wheat grain from the husk of the seed. It's chaff. But notice the harvest of the vine involves two stages. The gathering in of the harvest, then the treading of the grape in God's winepress. 
Now, there's a further distinction, but for that one, we have to go a bit deeper into the Old Testament scriptures. I've mentioned it a moment ago, the fact that at the beginning of chapter 14 in verse 4, we read how the lambs, 144,000, are described how? Well, they're described as the first fruits for God and the lamb. Now, that should ring a bell in our heads because that's a reference to the law of Moses. The first fruit occurs at the Feast of Weeks, the start of what? The wheat harvest. It's at the Feast of Weeks that the first fruit of the harvest is dedicated before all the remaining sheaves are gathered in. It's a offering of thanksgiving. So the first fruits mentioned in verse 4 would lead those who understood the Old Testament cycle of the law of Moses to anticipate the full harvest to come of the lamb's wheat into his barns. So with the benediction of chapter 13 ringing in our ears, we see its aim as the redeemed are finally gathered in. Now we know we have Jesus here because John writes in verse 14 that he sees him coming in the clouds of heaven. The one seated on the cloud like a son of man with a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. Now those three descriptors are full of Old Testament allusions. The fact that Jesus is coming in the clouds identifies with him with the one like a son of man who received the kingdom from the Ancient of Days in Daniel chapter 7. The fact that Jesus is seated identifies him as the one seated at the Lord's right hand in Psalm 110. And then we have the witness of Jesus himself who combines those two images. Daniel 7, like the Son of Man coming in clouds, with Psalm 110, verse 1, when he is cross-examined at his trial. This is why they erupt and shout to crucify him because of his blasphemy. He's before the high priest in the Sanhedrin, and he says this, From now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Do you see them both there? Now, the cloud mentioned here has nothing to do with the weather. It's not meteorological. Rather, it is theological in its significance. You see, this is the same cloud that filled Solomon's temple and which Ezekiel saw depart when the glory left Israel. It's the cloud that surrounded our Savior at his transfiguration. It's the one in which he was received into when he ascended to the Father from the Mount of Olives. In other words, this cloud is the cloud of God's glory. He comes with all the glory of God, vested with all the authority as the one who is ordained by the Father to judge the living and the dead. He's also wearing a golden crown because he has conquered and received what he promised to give it now to his church. 
Now, knowing the particulars of this harvest would be a matter of tremendous comfort to every believer to know that it is Christ our Savior himself who comes to judge the living and the dead. It means for you and I, who trust in Christ, we can face the prospect of Judgment Day with confidence because we belong to him. He will come in clouds of glory, with a crown of victory upon his head, and want to crown us in the same way as the Apostle Paul testifies in his letters. We'll appear before him without shame on that day, Because our Savior has triumphed over sin and death and the grave, and his victory is your victory, my dear friend. He is coming with the victor's crown on his brow to judge both living and dead. But what of the harvest of the grape now in verses 17 through 20? Notice how the command to harvest the earth's grapevine is given through another angel. We're told one who has authority over fire. In other words, the fire that comes from the altar. Another Old Testament allusion here to the requirement of the law of Moses. In other words, in both tabernacle and temple, the altar has that double association. The blood of slain animals and the fire that consumes them. And we saw, haven't we, how John describes the soul of the martyrs under the heavenly altar where the blood of the victims flow. And at the trumpet judgment, John also saw the angel draw fire from the altar where the church's prayers had ascended as incense to throw that fire down as judgment upon the earth. So it is this very angel once again who has the authority over the fires of judgment that brings God's command to gather in sinful and still rebellious humanity. They are to be crushed in God's press until their blood, notice, like the blood of the martyrs, flow like a flood of red wine. This command from the altar will give testimony to God's ultimate justice. The harvest itself of the grapes from the earth's vine is accomplished by a third angel. As the vision of the Lamb's 144,000 is the first fruit of heaven, which anticipated the grain harvest, so earlier the angel's declaration that the sinful will drink the wine of God's wrath, we saw in verse 10 last time, now is foreshadowed and fulfilled in this grape harvest as the crushing of the wicked into the great wine press of the wrath of God that is in verse 19. Now it's in Isaiah 63, you can go and read that this week for your homework, that gives you the fullest description of the wine press of God that tramples the grapes that are thrown into it. And there we learn from Isaiah how the wine symbolizes God's judgment in two ways. God's enemies are trodden upon like grapes, and their blood is the wine that flows from the winepress. 
But wine is also the drink with which God intoxicates his enemies and makes them senseless. And John describes it in the same two ways. We saw last time how John writes that God's enemies will drink the cup of his wrath in verse 10. But they are also the grapes thrown into his press, from which their blood flows as high as the bridle of a war horse, flooding the land to its boundary. Now the commentators tell us that this description was quite common, a way to describe in hyperbole the extent of an enemy's defeat. In other words, to measure the depth of blood after a battle in comparison to a horse's stature, such as to their chest, to their bridle, to indeed up to their nostrils. So when we reach Revelation 19, John describes the word of God riding a white horse, his robe stained with blood like in Isaiah 63, prepared to strike with his sword and to tread what? The winepress of the fury of the wrath of God, the Almighty. And so, with the sweep of God's sickle, brings the ultimate harvest to the earth, separating grain from grape, the present world system of power, from those who are persecuted by that power. That imbalance is overturned. The ungodly who tread upon the holy city, which we read in Revelation 11, will they themselves be trodden underfoot by the church's warrior, the Lord Jesus Christ. The redeemed come into God's holy city, but as we see here, they are slaughtered outside God's holy city. A day is coming, my dear friends, when the very lifeblood will be squeezed out of this world in the winepress of God's wrath. That is the message of this final scene as this vision draws to a conclusion. And ultimately, it becomes the message of the entire scriptures. It's the picture you get when you read of Joel chapter 3, verse 14, where the multitudes stand in the valley of decision, the valley of decision. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. Now, my dear friends, this is not an evangelistic crusade. In other words, the decision in the valley of decision is not ours. It is indeed the Lord God Almighty's. In other words, this is God's final verdict on humanity, and it is overwhelmed in an instant of time. And so, John's question continues to press upon those who hear his description. What does that mean for you? What does that mean for me? Is there comfort for you here, or are you troubled by what you hear? To know that before God tramples the lifeblood Out of this world, he will first gather in all 
his wheat. I go to prepare a place for you, our Savior said, so that where I am, you may be also. That is a tremendous comfort, isn't it, for the believer? But the reality of this harvest is a great terror for the unbeliever. So John asks again, where, oh where, do you stand? Amen. Thank you for listening. You can find out more about us by going to our website, allsoulsnj.org. There, you can support our mission by making a one-time donation or starting a podcast member subscription by clicking the Support the Show link under the Contact Us tab. You can also support us in prayer by clicking the email newsletter tab at the top. All Souls Anglican Church. Simple church, ancient truth, real people, new life.